0: Dude, we are going to energise the country. We need to wake up and smell the coffee. No more Mr Nice Guy. Another future is possible, but we've got to fight for it. Order! Hello and welcome to the Debated Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Will. And in this episode, I am delighted to be joined by Ian Mulhern, the Executive Director for UK Policy and Chief Economist for the Tony Blair Institute for Global Change. Welcome to the podcast, Ian. Hi, Well, great to be with you. Um, so in this episode, we're going to be discussing um, a piece uh, that you've written uh, for the Institute uh, Lockdown Lessons, Five Steps That Should Guide the UK's New Roadmap. And to begin with, I'd like to ask you about a statistic that particularly um, stood out to me, quite a stark statistic. In the piece, you mentioned that uh, two-thirds of uh, COVID-19-related deaths have occurred since September. So my first question is. Why do you think that's happened, and what do you think that that says about the government's response?
1: Well, it's a good question. Well, I mean, I think what we um, what what we what we faced this week with the government's new plan to exit lockdown was almost a rerun of what we had, uh, you know, last May when uh, the country come out was coming out of its first lockdown, and everybody was looking to see what sort of. Uh, uh, plan the government would, would put forward uh, uh, but of course you know as you as you suggested as that number suggests uh, whatever strategy it was that the government was seeking to follow after May last year it didn't really work and things slipped out of control as we all know in the autumn uh, cases mounted and uh, and here we are in, a, in another uh, heavy lockdown so I think what it tells us is that um, uh, for whatever reason, um, uh, you know that, that exit strategy didn't work. So it's critically important that we at least look back and try and work out why it didn't work before we sort of uh, figure out what to do this
0: time. And one of the things um, that the piece uh, suggests as to, to why it didn't work is the fact that the uh, Joint Biosecurity Centre's alert system uh, has not been linked uh, to the uh, tier system that the government implemented, Why do you think that they didn't make that link, which would seem, particularly in light of reading your piece, a fairly obvious uh, link to make? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, if you go back to what the Prime
1: Minister said on the 11th of May, I think it's the 11th of May, um uh, when he spoke about the the exit from lockdown he announced the setting up of this joint biosecurity center as sort of an expert body to to judge the alerts the alert level according to the sort of prevalence of the virus and the rate of spread uh, that we were seeing and um and the implication uh, uh was that that would govern in fact the prime minister said directly that 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 uh, would govern the degree to which restrictions were imposed um, but you know over the summer as case numbers fell and things started to get back to relative normality uh, there, there was no kind of formal link between those those restri- uh, the, that those alert levels and any set of restrictions the government might introduce, so that when the cases started rising again and the JBC changed its alert level, there was no sort of automatic trigger or or or, uh, or association with restrictions. Um, and uh, I mean, why why was that the case? I think it's hard to know really. I mean, to some degree, I think it was just a uh, just a, a gap in, in the strategy it's sort of the, they hadn't really there was a sort of crossing the fingers and hoping that it was all over and we could just get out of it uh, kind of approach. So the, the, the clearly expressed intention of the Prime minister so then wasn't followed through because there was no, no clear link established in the exit plan. Uh, so, so, I think that's the salutary lesson. If things sort of start going quite well over the next few months and everybody thinks it's all over, then, you know, are we going to be back in the same situation? Um, I think there's another reason, though, why possibly no explicit link was made. And that's that, you know, a feature of the government's response uh, throughout has been that it's wanted to retain flexibility um, and I think there's some in its response that, and make decisions at the time, um, and you know there's some valid reasons for that, but there's also some problems with that, and that it can encourage a lot of dither and delay um, uh, when things start to go wrong. Um, and I think you know that 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 ties into a, a, a further point that we raise in the paper that. You know, particularly from the Treasury side, there was a sort of underestimation of the economic implications of letting the virus get out of control, really. Um, and so the Treasury was always pulling back on the need to implement restrictions. And so, in a sense, that Treasury pressure meant that the the lack of a link between the alert level and the restrictions uh, turned into you know holding off too long and then having to act much more uh, strongly later, which is why we're in this lockdown.
0: Mm. And on the point of the Treasury, um, of course, in the next week, we're going to be seeing a um, March uh, budget or a March uh, economic plan from the Chancellor. Uh, what do you think is going to be uh, central to that plan? Do you think it's just going to be a case of ensuring that the uh, there's enough money going into the economy and into uh, supporting businesses? and What impact do you think that that's going to have on the lockdown? Because as you mentioned there, the Treasury throughout this process seems to have been somewhat reluctant to do anything that would um, uh, impact business negatively, like the lockdowns. Do you think that this uh, March budget is going to have any impact on the restrictions that we're currently under?
1: well i think um i it, it's obviously hard to know exactly what's going to be in it but I, I think the you know the noises that we're getting is you know there will be some extensions to support and that kind of thing and the treasury's done very well in some aspects of the crisis you know particularly the the, the furlough scheme and, and, and other things like that i mean there, there are gaps but you know on the whole it's been pretty good um and so I think that extension of the short-term support will be there, which is going to be uh, is going to be important. And so that's uh, it's it, it, welcome to to see. I think what we lack again is it's a bit of a one-way ticket. Again, it sounds like there'll be plans to phase out the current levels of support. There there won't really be any kind of framework for thinking about well, what if say a certain area of the country faces an outbreak and we need to clamp down? It will there be any support provided for? those uh areas and on what basis uh so you know it's it's kind of like um i i think they're again very much planning on the basis that this is going to be over uh pretty mm. soon uh, and that may or may not be a, a good uh, good basis to to plan but it certainly didn't work last time obviously things are a bit different this time with the vaccine uh but but still it's probably not the ideal way to approach it
0: um and uh... On the point of uh, easing restrictions one of the uh, main uh, arguments in uh, the piece that you've written is that the either tightening or loosening of restrictions should be based on um, data that is provided and it should be data-led and work very much with the uh, JBC and one of the problems in terms of um, implementing the restrictions and the lockdown has been the interplay between um, national authorities and uh, regional governance Do you think that part of the reason that we've had uh, this uh, problems between national government and local government has been because of a certain amount of um, political uh, grandstanding from either side that have wanted to uh, take the lead in their particular area or, in the case of the government, wanting to stamp its mark of authority over the whole country? And this has resulted in um, a worse uh, implementation of restrictions than otherwise if the government and uh, local government had worked uh, more closely together.
1: Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, it's 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 clear that there have been those uh, tussles and some of them for very legitimate reasons and others for perhaps less legitimate reasons, <laughs> um, uh, some aspects of it. But um, I think the thing to take away from it is that because there was no, you know, in the autumn, the government was trying to stitch up Uh, you know, ad hoc support for local areas, you know, on the hoof And inevitably, if you're going to do things that complicated uh, in that kind of uh, quick turnaround timeframe... Uh, it, and it's highly political obviously you're talking about people's livelihoods and people's lives here uh, you know it's going to it's going to deteriorate right? and then you're going to face these kind of clashes so it's all the more reason to have set out a full comprehensive strategy for how we intend to deal with these things in any set of circumstances that might arise rather than uh, essentially crossing our fingers and hoping for the best uh, and so you know i think it was again that kind of the, the the lack of any plan so they almost hadn't wargamed any of these uh, uh potential second wave or whatever uh and so we were really caught on the hoof and, and 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 that was the 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 cause i think of a lot of the the political uh, uh battles that that then ensued
0: And on the point of the um, political battles uh, that ensued, one of the uh, issues that we have seen is that people perhaps in uh, more rural areas have complained, why are we in a particular uh, tier when we don't have, uh, uh, in this particular uh, part of this region, uh, a high amount of transmission compared to other areas uh, that have uh, higher amounts of transmission? There's been lots of arguments relating to um, population density and, in fact, um, uh, Few months ago, you had a uh, Conservative MP, perhaps slightly ridiculously, in London arguing, "Well, why is this particular uh, borough under this level of restrictions when the borough that I represent uh, isn't?" Do you think that uh, devolving um, a restrictions based on population uh, density uh, was uh, is, is an idea that is too micro-managerial in terms of? Um, attempting to combat the virus and wouldn't work? Or do you think that perhaps working on a more micro level might help in establishing uh, better links in terms of chain of transmission from uh, one individual to another?
1: So I think, um, yeah, so I guess the context here is that obviously in the last exit strategy, we had a, you know, uh, a system of kind of local interventions, you know, starting Mm. with... um, uh, Leicester uh, back in July um, time, and, and then of course you know stretching out to you know uh, Greater Manchester and Liverpool and various other places. So you know you, you we, we we saw that kind of local variation in restrictions um, in the last one uh, in last exit, uh, and of course this time the government has essentially tried to avoid that and said look it didn't really work and we don't really want to do that, so we're gonna the whole country is gonna exit at, at once. And that's, I think, the um, uh, the, the context for this. Um, I, I think in terms of, in, in t- t- it, our view is that that is not uh, a very sensible way mm. to go. Now, it's always the case, as you kind of imply in a question, that there's going to be uh, perceived unfairnesses. Um, if you get, get to sort of local uh, area restrictions, there's always going to be some area that's, apparently uh you know out outside the net and um or you know you cross the road and you're in a different set of restrictions so it, that's always going to be the case but that doesn't mean we shouldn't strive for at least a more sensible and reasonable approach to these things and i think we we're already seeing the emergence uh across the country, of some of the problems with having a one-size-fits-all policy. M- much of the North, the Midlands and the North, we're seeing rates of infection at the moment that are twice those in the South, the greatest Southeast and Southwest. Um, and also, uh, numbers are falling much faster in the uh, Great Southeast as well. Uh, so, you know, what we're going to see if trends continue within a couple of weeks is... Um, uh, it, it is that case numbers in the in in, in um, outside the southeast are going to be um, many multiples potentially of those in the in, in the south. Now, of course, all that could change, but it just goes to show that you know if you are um, if you're just taking a one size fits all policy to the ending restrictions the likelihood is that you know, for half the country it's going to be too soon to lift restrictions and for half the country it's going to be too late. Uh, and that means unnecessary either lost lives or lost livelihoods. And so uh, that doesn't make much sense. And I think most people would understand that um, you know uh, fl- regional flexibility or local flexibility is, a, is, is a, um, a sensible step to kind of get out of this with the minimum damage uh, uh, being done.
0: We're now going to take a short break from our discussion with Ian Mulhern to hear a trailer for the Politics of Sound podcast. When we come back, I will be discussing with Ian Mulhern vaccination in the UK as compared to the EU, domestic versus international vaccine passports, and the long term effects of the pandemic, what impact it will have on statutory sick pay, and many other things. See you in a moment.
1: Do you want to see your politicians from a different angle? It's time for the Politics of Sound podcast. I believe that people's record collections can reveal a lot about them. And so every month I invite politicians and political figures to reveal their three all-time favourite albums. And in exchange, I want to know all about them and their lives, what they think and why they think it. My guest for the March episode... Is
0: Lawrence Fox? I've always thought what I think. No, I'm not. Sorry, I do believe it, and you know what? I believe it even more today than I did. I think Twitter's a sewer. Sorry, that's not how democracy works. Oh God, who said it? I've gone woke. It's not like I was saying anything controversial.
1: The Politics of Sound podcast with my guest Lawrence Fox out March the first on Global Player or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Um, Now, uh, in the paper, you propose uh, a framework of systems of linked tiers and alerts, and there are five uh, alert levels. The uh, highest uh, alert level, level five, uh, healthcare capacity near limits, level four, transmissions high, uh, three, epidemic in general circulation, two, transmission low, uh, one, known known, uh, cases in the UK. Uh, Which level do you think we're in at the moment, and how long would you uh, think that we would need to be within uh, these uh, linked tiers if um, uh, the linked tiers that you suggest in the paper uh, were implemented?
1: So in terms of the kind of alert levels that we kind of sketch out, they're largely based on the JBC's alert levels, although we've slightly tinkered with the thresholds that they use. Um, uh, to, to 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 try and bring them a bit more into line with what it looks like the government is trying to do. So we, in a sense, ours is an effort. We it, we're not being prescriptive and saying this is the right answer, but we're sort of saying if you try and bring together the alert system that the JBC uses and the government's kind of intention about when it wants to open up, this is broadly how it how it could, should fit together. If if you were to link uh, alerts to measures, um, so yeah, we have. Um, and I think the JBCs just reduced the alert level to four, and on our kind of um, uh, on our grid, uh, the, 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 the the level of infections would would have us at a, at a level four at the moment. Um, now I can't remember the exact numbers for uh, southeast London, the east, and the and the southwest, but certainly case numbers are. Uh, falling relatively quickly and within a couple of weeks you could imagine us being in a sort of alert level three in the south uh, but probably still in four in, in much of the rest of the country. Uh, and, you know, again, don't want to be prescriptive over exactly what actions should accompany these things but, you know, uh, we, we were um, uh, floating the idea that, you know, once you get to that kind of relatively low level of infection it's possible that you could start easing to non-essential retail uh, uh in in uh, those areas with cases that are running at less than 50 new cases per hundred thousand per week um so so that it gives you a sense that uh, probably the on average the government's opening reopening strategy is about right for the country but um, probably in different areas of the country you could be going faster or slower um, given the rates of infection we're seeing um
0: now in, in terms of uh vaccination, there has been an argument made by uh, some people who supported uh, Brexit that because the UK has been vaccinating at a uh, swifter rate than the EU, that this proves that um, Brexit uh, was the right thing to do and that we could only do this outside the European Union, all that kind of thing. Uh, what do you think of that argument? Well um I, I I think
1: overall that there's not a lot in that argument really there's very little if anything that uh, the government couldn't have done within the EU uh that it uh that it uh, ultimately uh, did um but I think there is something uh to be said for um you know it pointing the way the success of the strategy and it was really the strategy that the uh uh the the, the government and its task force took uh, that was successful in 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 um getting ahead of the curve being uh, good customers you know um priming the pump making sure that supply chains were built here easing the way for trials to be done here uh, all of those things um cleared the path and made it uh, uh, much uh, much quicker for us to, to get authorizations and get rollout in the UK. Uh, so, you know, and I think that's partly because the UK government recognised that it was a relatively small player globally and it had to uh, be nimble and helpful and those kinds of things. And so there's probably a lesson in there about, you know, uh, uh, how um, we can make a, a success of... Um, the Problems that Brexit's created, or at least minimize the downsides of them. Uh, but that's not the same as saying that this stuff couldn't have been done within the EU because it, it clearly could have done.
0: Um, now, uh, looking uh, towards um, in the piece uh, when you discuss uh, when we're finally uh, getting towards a, a state of normality, as uh, you mentioned, the idea of some form of international health credential. Um, uh, to ensure that people who are travelling abor- abroad, you know, know that the, that they've had uh, the vaccination, and there has been some argument as to whether we should have that domestically, a, a domestic vaccine passport. How realistic do you think the idea of a domestic vaccine passport would be, and how much do you think if the government did implement it, it would cost?
1: Well, it, it's um, it's obviously a big logistical challenge. Um, I, I think. It, it, to start with the the kind of background to the sort of uh the, the government's plans to ease all restrictions in june um i mean if you look at the modeling that the government uh government's model has produced alongside the exit plan uh, you know they do expect there to be quite a big resurgence in cases and deaths as we open up uh part, partly because there's going to be a lot of people who aren't vaccinated including children and partly because there's um uh uh you know uh, there's still quite a lot of uh, is vulnerable people who 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 may succumb to the virus still so um so there's a there's going to be a lot of questions about you know how good is our containment infrastructure because we're not going to be able to rely solely on on the uh, on the vaccine to stop uh, the the virus from spreading um and uh so that's where it kind of you know it, it's almost a natural question that a lot of businesses who are worried about whether their customers are going to come back are going to start to ask, um, you know, is there a way of helping people or making sure that customers are not putting other customers at risk or staff at risk or, or whatever? Um, so, And, you know, there are there are ethical questions around that that's, mm. that, that we need to uh, consider. So it's difficult to know how this will uh, so, so that's one part of the, the picture. The other part of the picture is internationally with international travel, it seems increasingly clear that you know, that this is where uh, we're going to go. Now, I think in terms of some of the ethical questions, if you take the view that there is going to be a kind of bottom up push, you know, for certain establishments are going to want people to be to have some sort of credential. Uh, and you've got this need for an international, uh, some sort of international system, Uh, then it makes sense for government to try to um, coordinate this and tackle some of the ethical questions. So one of the things we suggested is that this could be a a digital health credential that doesn't allow, doesn't uh, mean anybody has to uh, give away any of their own identity to Mm. the to the organisation that's asking for your um, health credentials, um, and that also it could include uh, whether people have had, you know, recent negative tests as well, uh, so that people who, for whatever reason, can't have a vaccine, don't want a vaccine, whatever, as long as they are, you know, test, testing themselves or whatever, and, and have and can prove that, then uh, they shouldn't be prevented from uh, from from uh, accessing uh, the same. Uh, you know, services and, and, and whatever is everybody else. So um, so I think there's a way of doing this, which if the government takes the lead and designs it well, uh, would coordinate with other countries, but would also coordinate the private sector and, and limit the ethical uh, uh, problems that, that arise. Um, in terms of cost, I mean, I, I, I'm afraid I can't really speak to that. Um, obviously, there are, um, we have a lot of infrastructure already uh, uh, available things like the, the NHS um, uh, booking app and things like that, which have been mentioned as, as possible platforms for some of this stuff. But uh, it, it's not it's not something that I, I could comment on about how much that would cost. But I, I do think that um, given the challenge we'll face in terms of um, containing the virus, if we could get this to work, it could be quite effective at saving lives.
0: Um, in terms of um, testing, there has obviously... Uh, because tests take a certain amount of time, there has been emphasis uh, placed uh, by some, including some in government, on the use of uh, rapid testing, which can, in certain circumstances, not be as effective as uh, other tests. Uh, how much do you think we would have to step up uh, rapid testing uh, to make it a uh, more effective and to ensure that we are catching uh, people who may potentially uh, have the virus. And do you think that this is something that, you know, we would have the uh, capacity to be able to fully roll out across the country? Or is it going to have to only be at particular areas? So, for example, um, checkpoints coming in at and out of the country, airports, et cetera.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think you know these things—the the, the testing technology and rapid testing and things—are are improving all the time. And so, um, uh, I think you know, as we as we get out of this uh, lockdown, it, it does seem like the um, a, a critical component of the of the solution. Um, it, and I mean, it, it, it's it's hard to say whether you know how what the best strategies in terms of rolling them out. I mean, I think government is planning to use them. Uh, with schools and things like that and other areas of high contact, uh, probably people coming into the country is another obvious forum in which you would roll these things out. Uh, but of course, it's possible to go much further as well. Um, it, it, um, it, it all depends, I guess, on the effectiveness of them and, and, and the cost and whether or not uh, you know uh, it, it, whether or not certain areas a, of life are, uh, it, it's more useful to have that kind of capacity to test in than others and, and, and there's, there's going to be some sort of cost-effectiveness trade-off there but it's hard to see a world in which they're not at least part of the solution.
0: Uh, now in terms of um, statutory uh, sick pay there's obviously been uh, a great deal of um, contention between those who have been... Um, uh, attempting to get it and those who have been able to get it and those who have also been um, trying to get the uh, £500 uh, self-isolation payment. You mentioned uh, in the piece that the TUC has estimated that uh, 70% of applicants have been rejected. Do you think that there needs to be a more robust system in terms of uh, statutory sick pay and isolation pay to ensure that as restrictions are eased that we don't potentially see people being forced to go to work who may have symptoms or uh, you know have uh, the the um, asymptom- uh, who are potentially asymptomatic who could spread uh, the virus around their workplace
1: yeah i think that's right i mean i i, I think the um uh the, the the pandemic should really change our our, our view of the importance of um uh sick pain things like that and and uh, changing a culture from which people are it, it, you know it's not it's not a good to, it's, it's a good thing to go to struggle into work no matter what versus yeah. uh, one way people can pass on pass on infections uh, like this uh and, and actually knock out you know many more people from the workforce for a few days um so i think and one of the things that we've seen is obviously a lot of concern over compliance with isolation measures and and uh uh, requirements uh, and the, the the idea that maybe people just don't care or uh, whatever, and and the reality for a lot of people is that they simply can't afford to. Um, and so I think we just need to we we need to recognise that, that financial constraint on complying with the isolation rules is is a major one and um you know those of us lucky enough to work in a work from home don't necessarily <laughs> appreciate uh, quite how stark that choice is for a lot of people a lot of the time so um i, I think there's there's um uh now with the tuc's figure of 70 percent of people being rejected from having to claim uh, from claiming the the payment i mean it's hard to know you know obviously what's going on there you don't know how many of them would or would not have been eligible but it does seem very Uh, surprisingly high rejection rate um, which uh, does uh, just point to the fact that you know uh, people need financial support if they're going to be able to uh, uh, you know um, self-isolate and put food on the table and nobody
0: really should be put in the position of having to make that difficult choice. Um, We're coming towards uh, the end of the podcast. It's been great to have you on, Ian. And I have one uh, final uh, question. Throughout this podcast, we've been discussing uh, lockdown, which, as we mentioned, we're uh, currently in. And of course, uh, regardless of the lockdown, because of the pandemic, there are uh, restrictions on what uh, we've been able to do. So when the pandemic is finally uh, resolved and things go back to a a state of uh, normal uh, activity, What one thing that you haven't been able to do because of the pandemic are you most looking forward to being able to do again?
1: (laughs) Great question. There's so many to choose from, Um, but it's probably going to be uh, having a cold beer in the pub, I think.
0: i think that's a uh that's a, a a a great choice it's one that i certainly uh, will be looking forward to and i think uh, a great deal of our listeners will be as well uh, thank you once again for coming on the podcast if people want to find out more about the paper more about you more about the uh, tony blair uh, institute for global change where should they go
1: yeah so if you look at our website institute.global then um, you can find all of our stuff and, and the report that we've been talking about today so please do Go and have a look and get in touch if you've got comments or suggestions
0: excellent thank you once again for coming on the podcast thanks Bill. thank you for listening to this episode of the podcast if you've enjoyed it you can subscribe to us on iTunes Spotify Podbeam and Amazon Music you can also follow us on Twitter at debatedpodcast like us on Facebook Podcast, and if you'd like to get in touch with us whether about appearing on an episode of the podcast or commenting on an episode that you've listened to, you can do so at the at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. I hope you listen to the next one.